This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. everyone, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and today my guest is KJ Ramsey. Her new book, This Too Shall Last, is just out this week, and it was such an honor to get to talk with her. KJ has been living for the past more than a decade with a chronic illness that causes her a lot of pain, um, and that is ultimately what led to the creation of her book. Um, and I think that anyone who's been through something long-suffering will find comfort and wisdom in her words. In today's interview, we talk a lot about what she's been through and how she finds the strength to get through it and keeps her faith in God strong um, despite her struggle. Um, she's got a lot of wisdom. She's also a therapist, and, and you can kind of tell um, that she knows what she's talking about when it comes to you know, the emotional and mental side of everything. And I, I really got a lot out of this conversation uh, I encourage you to take a listen and pick up a copy. Enjoy this conversation with KJ Ramsey. All right, KJ, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we are here, well, in part to talk about your new book that's coming out, This Too Shall Last. And I'm so excited to finally be talking with you because um, I feel like we connected I don't know, must have been, I feel like it was close to, to a year ago almost with Through Hope Writers. And Maybe, yeah. Yeah. And so um, I had seen sort of the progression of leading up to the book and now it's like finally, is it next week? Yeah, it's it releases in six days. Yeah. So by the time people hear this, it'll probably already be out. Um, but I'm yes. excited that I got a digital copy and I already got to start reading it. <laughs> oh. Well, glad, that, glad you're reading it. Yeah. So to kick it off, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and um, what you do? What's important to you? Yeah. I am somebody who loves beauty, is always trying to find the place where sorrow and joy come together. I'm a therapist. I have a private practice. Um, I'm in Denver, Colorado. And I'm one big nerd who loves writing, loves research, and is so grateful that I get to write for a big portion of my living. So that's part of what I'm about. And your book is inspired sort of by some of the struggles that you've gone through personally, physically with your health. So tell me, what is the health condition that you have? What are some of sort of the details about that and what led you to sort of use that as a muse for your writing? I have ankylosing spondylitis, AS. It's an autoimmune disease that affects my spine and most of my joints. And I've had it for 11 years now. Um, The experience of having AS has forced me to really reckon with sorrow on a daily basis because I haven't had a day in those 11 years without some measure of profound physical pain. And, but when I write about suffering, um, I'm writing about that, but I'm also 
writing about the the many painful parts in our stories that we did not choose but are there and and speaking into who we believe we are, who we believe God is, and how much joy we feel is possible to experience. And so for me, that means writing in part about the, my disease, but also um, being cognizant and connected to all the painful parts of my own story with hope that it invites readers to pay attention to and embrace the painful parts in their stories. And so when this started for you, um, how, how did you end up landing on that diagnosis? Did it take a long time to figure out what was wrong? Because it seems like that is from, even from reading your first chapter, it seems like it might've been difficult to get to that conclusion. Yes, it was very, very difficult. It, Took, it took four years for my diagnosis to be confirmed. Uh, within those four years, I was getting treatment for what it's basically um, all the treatment for AS is, is almost identical to like rheumatoid arthritis. And, and we kind of thought that that was what I had. So they were thankfully treating me, which I think really helped slow the progression of the disease, even though I never have been in remission. But but the the mental anguish of not having a confirmed diagnosis and being treated by medical professionals as though I was lying or overreacting, that was honestly some of the worst part of my whole last 11 years. Um, yeah. How did people, I mean, I I read that about the, I thought it was so interesting that you wrote about how women are more often thought to be lying about health conditions in the medical field, which I had never heard before, which I think is crazy. Um, but how do you deal with that? And why? Why is that that people would think that you were lying? Well, I think that our culture likes to we like to believe that we can have answers for everything. And there are some experiences and some conditions that are not easy to understand. Even with all the advances of our medical system and pharmaceutical offerings, there are still things that happen in our bodies that are not easy to see on a blood test or an x-ray or an MRI. And I think that not being able to classify something actually confronts our inability to understand everything and to fix everything. And so I think that people who are in persistent pain actually confront those who have power with their inability to be able to save and fix. Mm -hmm. So I think women in unexplainable pain actually are disrupting power and our our desire to be in more control than we really are. We disrupt doctors, we disrupt our families, <laughs> we disrupt a lot. Yeah, it's this, you know, this you said you wrote about this, but just 
the story that we tell ourselves about how life is supposed to go. Like doctors are supposed to have the answers and, you know, the president's supposed to do the right thing and all of these different areas. Um, it's, it's not always that way. When mm-hmm. you were told that when you finally got to, to what it was and you were then told, but there's really, there's no cure. How did you deal with that information? Well, <clears throat> When I finally, when we finally confirmed what was wrong, you know, at first it was actually just a major relief. It was a relief to know that I'm not crazy. It was a relief to know I hadn't overreacted all these years. And it was also a relief because it did mean that there were more treatment options available for me than had I not had a diagnosis. So while there's not a cure, there there is treatment. Um, but this is again where, uh, what we project is very different than what the experience of people with illnesses like mine is. And so you've probably seen tons of ads, commercials for a lot of the medications that I've been on and they depict people playing tennis and swimming and like running and being with their families. And it makes it look like you take this medicine, you will be better. And so I think I had the hope that, okay, now I'm going to have options and this is going to be better. Uh, And at points it has been better. There have been, there's many points at which I, I couldn't, walk at all. I couldn't leave bed and medications have made it possible for me to have, have a lot more of a life, but they don't fix everything. And so, yeah, I think getting, getting my diagnosis was especially just a deep validation of the truth that I knew in my soul about what was wrong. And that gave me more than even the medical answers could give me. So what does it look like for you? Because it sounds like it's sort of maybe cyclical or up and down. So what does a day look like for you? Or when things get bad, how does that look? So it is up and down. Um, Some patients with AS and diseases like it will have periods of remission where they're almost completely symptom-free or symptom-free and then have periods of flare where things are a lot more active and they're in a lot more pain. For me, I've never had remission, so I always have pain. It's just a matter of how much. And currently, um, I'm in a season where my treatment has failed, and so my disease has been a lot more active there's a lot more inflammation in my body. And what that looks like is every morning and night, especially I'm in intense pain. I can't, um, I can't walk easily. My, my, my joints in my fingers are swollen. I can't wear my wedding rings. Um, you know, I use heating pads. I, it, it can look, there's many seasons in which this happens. And, and even when my treatment is doing well, there can be just random days that I am in a ton of pain and I suddenly, I cannot walk. I can't move. I can't barely hold even my phone in my hand. Um, so it, it goes up and down. Um, but yeah, it's, and I think that's part of what 
I why I love to write about from the place of my experience because I want to invite people to be willing to be where they are knowing that it will continue to change and there will be days that weakness makes you so weary that you can't do anything and there will be days that you are able to do more and like there has to be a courage to show up where we are or we're just going to crumble (laughs) yeah what is your thought process on a hard day what are you thinking about to get through so on a hard day I think the day would begin with a groan and I, before I move even in bed, I have a practice of just calling out to God and asking for his help to be where I am. And I might say, this is hard. Um, because it is demoralizing and hard to wake up in as much pain as I wake up in as many days as I do. Um, and I practically care for my body where it's at. So I often, I mean, every day I will hobble to the couch and my husband makes me coffee and hands it to me because I can't make it myself or pour myself. It's just too much for my wrists and hands. But on harder days, I I have to be willing to go lay in the bathtub and let the heat help my body move a little bit more than it could without it. So I think my thought process is about willingness it's like consenting to be where I am and be in the reality that I'm in that my body deserves care. And that has to take the priority over what I wish I was doing. Yeah. It's kind of like so many times we hear, I hear, um, you know, advice, just be where you are. And you know, little things that you'll hear in yoga or meditations and you think like, I should do that. Like, that's a, that's a good idea. But when you are literally physically dealing with pain, you almost don't have a choice but to embrace that in order to get through it, would you say? Yeah. I mean, the alternative to being where I am is being frustrated. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Now, being where I am involves being frustrated. I don't like being in as much pain as I am in. But by this deep belief that God is with me and that there is goodness breaking into this world, I am able to turn toward my life like there is actually grace here. And that consent to be willing to be where I am in the body that I have in the place that I am in is what makes it possible then to encounter and experience and be enveloped by goodness. That's where joy comes alongside sorrow. It's in our consent to be where we are. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's been 11 years since this started for you. So I'm sure it's been a journey in your relationship with God. So many people want to ask God, like, of course, why? Why is this happening to me? And you could ask that about many things. Um, have you had that conversation? And do you think, you know, I mean, not blame God, but, you know, wh- how did you have that sort of, how did that journey look? Well, like you said, it's been an 11 year journey. So I won't really be able to describe all of it. But yeah, I've asked those questions. Yes, I continue to ask those questions. And, you know, it really depends on the season and what was happening as to what what the tone of those questions was and and what the the canopy of color around it looked like but i think that what is more important for people to hear is that those questions are allowed mm-hmm. and that God himself in Christ asked these questions and cried these cries of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every question, every doubt is actually welcome, and it's in the speaking of it that we start to experience being heard by God and that we're able to encounter Christ in his story that he really did experience this absolute distance between himself and the father and this place where we feel so distanced from goodness and from life and joy is a place where Christ has gone and stands with us. When do you feel closest to God? I think I feel closest to God on my hardest days often when I am in the bathtub, not because I want to be there, but because I have to be there. And I start to contemplate Jesus and his pain and he meets me somehow there in agony I start to know that Christ is with me and loves me and is suffering with me. And I can't really describe how beautiful and good it is to be able to encounter that, but it's real and, and it happens again and again. Now this book, I think you said it was, basically came out of an article that you wrote for Christianity Today. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I had just started working on a book proposal when I had written that piece back in, I don't even remember when, I think. Um, So yeah, there's a, there's a journey as you, as you know, with writing, like we kind of test ideas out and explore them and Mm -hmm get to write articles sometimes at the beginning to test things out. What was the article about specifically, or what was the title? I don't even remember which one. (laughs) I read it. I can't remember either. I mean, it might have been, well, there was one a long, long, long time ago about like, I'm not invisible to God 
but mm-hmm. I think it might have been the God made our brains to need others. Yes, that's it. That okay. was it, I think. Yeah, that yes. was interesting. Well, that kind of leads me to another question, which was, I thought it was so interesting when you were writing about how I think, and correct me if I get this wrong, but like our brains use the same circuits to process pain as they do in social connectedness. Is that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that was really interesting to me. How did you figure that out and come across that? And what does that mean for us as social beings in pain? Yeah. So I don't remember how I initially came across that information because like I said, I am a nerd and I like to just read so much. So, um, you know, I think I started to encounter how our brains are both embodied and relational through the work of Dr. Kurt Thompson, um, who wrote The Soul of Shame and Anatomy of the Soul. And that and his work led me to to more people and to a lot of um, journal articles that I've just consumed over the years. I am so I was when I first read The Soul of Shame, I was so amazed because it described in both theological and physiological terms why a life like mine that includes so much pain can also include so much joy because of how God meets us. So it is written into the fabric of our bodies that we need one another. And there's something about suffering, not just of the physical kind, but of, of any kind of pain, this pain that makes you feel less than human, that actually elicits the recognition that you cannot do life on your own, that you need other people. And it propel it can propel you to reach out to be seen and to be held in a way that actually is profoundly healing for your body and soul to experience the kind of trust that you were always made to have. So that's, I guess, the beginning, a start. I could talk about this all day. Yeah. Well, I guess, and I I read another, I think you've written two pieces on this, but I don't know. I don't remember. But the point is that um, I thought, I just think it's so interesting how, oh, I think it was something about how community is actually healing to pain. And I think that's really profound because we talk about community as being you know, important for relieving depression. And that's part of why we um, think the church is so important because uh, because of, you know, all of the stats you see about how community and social connection, like, improves life. But I had never considered it in the um, realm of physical pain. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, let me ask you this. Why do you think it is that you didn't consider it? I guess because I think I, I've never, I don't see data on it. I, I see data on the mental stuff, not the physical stuff. And I'm, I'm looking at data a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that the reason most of us don't think about how community can change our experience of pain is 
because we tend to split our mental selves from our physical selves. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. And so we have... We have split ourselves in two. We've digested a story about personhood that says the mental is separate from the physical. And also the your rational thinking processes are more important than your body. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this devaluing of the body that actually perpetuates ways of being that are aimed at self-sufficiency and driven by shame that any sort of weakness is something that needs to be hidden and dealt with on your own until you can come back to a place of strength. Our physical weaknesses are a threat to the story of self-sufficiency that American culture feeds us every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, as soon as you say that, like that we split it up, I, of course, immediately I'm going, well, I don't believe that, but you can see how that is perpetuated. I totally see that. That makes sense. We um, don't, we don't, you don't think you believe it, but you probably live like it mm-hmm. in your everyday life. Like how much does your body matter? And when your body tells you that you're tired, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Most of us push through, right? you know? Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Definitely, I do. Uh, So now we've been, I mean, this is sort of a big question, but, you know, we've been going through quarantine, COVID, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You've probably been talking about that a lot. Uh, But, you know, how does that affect, has that affected you physically at all? I think it's affecting all of us mentally, but how is it affecting you? Yes, it is affecting me in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that the, the heightened stress of so much sorrow and so much uncertainty in our world has affected my disease. Um, Most autoimmune diseases like mine are very connected to stress and stress often will cause more inflammation. And I think that I've been experiencing that even with my best efforts towards self-care. And I think 
thinking of that makes me want to say to people who are listening, like if your physical health or mental health have been struggling, (laughs) have been worse during this season, even with your best efforts to take care of yourself, that is okay. Like Mm -hmm. this is a massive amount of stress and suffering to be watching and experiencing every day. Yeah. the the uncertainty alone is is just very very difficult for our souls to bear and our bodies to bear. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been it's been affecting me for sure. Um, I think I'm thankful to be at a point where I'm like able to get things done again. <laughs> there were so many weeks, I don't know about you, Erica, but there were a lot of weeks there at the beginning where I just was like, oh my word, I think I got two things done on my to-do list this oh, week. I was the, just, the whole week. Yeah. I was just out of ideas. You know, I was just like in terms of, uh, well, first yeah. of all, I had these children here <laughs> that right, I was dealing right. with but I mean which I love but you know makes it harder to do things uh uh-huh. but yeah no I I sort of felt frozen as well where it's like wait what do I do like I don't even know when any of this matters again uh you know I had other things that were put on hold indefinitely are still on hold indefinitely that you know when that kind of thing happens you get kind of stuck where you're like well and it's hard to figure out how to move forward. And I feel like I've had that feeling a lot. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to use the word frozen because I think that is what has happened to so many of us. It's like we there's so much happening around us in our world that we do get frozen in our fight flight or freeze mode mm-hmm. um where are the lower regions of our brain really are activated and shooting out cortisol throughout our bodies because it is scary it is threatening there is mm-hmm. actual danger so how do you live with um open heartedness to what your life can be and what you can offer the world when there is the threat of danger there constantly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where so many of us are finding ourselves. Like how do we turn toward our world again, knowing that engaging with it will come with great risk. And, and how are you, I mean, what's going on in Colorado? Are you guys, lifting restrictions right now or right so today is may 6th so in two days we'll be um going to what they're calling safer at home Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like our first step of coming out of our heavy heavy social distancing um and we also have like you have to wear a mask um or you get a fine when you're in public i think you're allowed to outside though be walking without your mask on but yeah there's a lot of restrictions and honestly for me that's gonna last a lot longer because I'm in the vulnerable population so like from our government mandates I'm I have to stay home 
<laughs> but also from like what I physically need, I'm going to need to stay home for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so my husband and I are just mentally preparing ourselves, I guess, for knowing like, I don't know, I might be home through this year. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of thinking like that you were talking about before about having to be where you are and yep. embrace that. Yeah. Consenting to be here and, and consenting to like, ha- to have to hold the uncertainty that comes with not getting to engage life the same way as I used to and that others can like this, this is affecting me financially. This is affecting my practice. This is affecting what opportunities that I have. And the, the loss of income is real and that will continue to be real. And can I trust that God will provide for me here? That is the question. And the answer will be yes, but it will come with tears and, (laughs) and wrestling. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. I meant to ask it earlier. Um, How do you think the church deals with people that are dealing with like chronic pain and and physical issues like you? I know that's so broad, the church, but in your experience, what can they be doing better? Well, I think the church often deals with people who are in chronic pain and with invisible illnesses and struggles, including mental health issues, by closing their eyes. Hmm. I think the church likes to look the other way and pretend that we are fine or that our pain is our problem our lack of faith. I actually think that's how most of the church deals with weakness and that how we respond to weakness actually shows the story we think is most true, which is not the story of the gospel, but it's the story of the American dream Mm -hmm. that striving and self-sufficiency are the goal. Self-sufficiency is the goal, but the gospel includes a God who died And that is our story, that weakness is part of the story, a part that secured our life and our union with God. So I also have experienced the church not turning away, and I've experienced the church being there for me and remembering me. Uh, On Sunday, I, I broke down in tears during our streaming service, which we're all like so sick of streaming services, I'm <laughs> sure. But we were Anglican and we have prayers for the prayers of the people as part of our liturgy every single week. And in our prayers of the people, they remembered me. And I hadn't asked to be prayed for, but someone had asked for me to be prayed for. And I was just sitting there praying, you know, Lord, hear our prayer. And then suddenly they said my name and like asked for God to strengthen me and be with me and provide what I need and to hear my name remembered without me asking for it to be remembered just went to the center of my soul that I am seen by God. And that's what we can do for those who are suffering. We can remember them. Hmm. 
do you think, um, I guess, are there any other ways that come to mind about how the church could do a better job? Well, there's a million ways. That would be um, probably like a whole bookshelf worth of books <laughs> to write, I think. But I think currently, to keep it really practical, that the church can do a better job by trying to think of who are the people in our midst who may be struggling and to go toward them. Jesus is always moving toward people on his own. And mm-hmm. we, we cannot just wait for people to ask for help, although there is a great grace and there's a great need for people like me to learn how to speak up and to advocate for ourselves, to ask for what we need. But in, in the purpose of this conversation, I think the church is called to emulate Jesus and to enter these places where people feel forgotten and on the margins and to take time to consider what are the needs in our church, where are people, how are they doing, and to go find out, to reach out, to text people, to call people, to be persistent, to hear where people in our midst are, and then to do something practical to show that they are remembered, whether that's through prayer or like another thing our church did was sent us a grocery card because they know like my husband's been like partially furloughed and that I've lost a lot of work. And that was huge. That was huge to to help us trust God is here. God is with us. God will provide these practical ways of showing up for those who are suffering, help those who are suffering know they are part of the body still. Yeah. That's such a good point because it's like when you hear people saying like someone puts up a message, like if you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, you know, let me know. I'll talk to you. But that person is not going to do that. They're not going oh, to person. They're not usually going to reach out. No, a lot of times they're not. And I think especially right now, um, it's hard to, it, it can feel hard to justify speaking up because there are bigger needs. Mm-hmm. And so I think probably a lot of people who are suffering with different things feel like me where like people are dying. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not dying. I'm uh, sitting in a bathtub in pain. And that can feel like it doesn't matter as much. And, and I think, yes, I and others do need to learn how to tell people about how we're doing. And that's part of my own uh, need of faith here. And that's what I practice. But also knowing that so many of us are in a place of weakness and feeling like our stories pale in comparison to the great suffering surrounding us. Church, please remember us. Please reach out to us. Mm -hmm. Please tell us our stories matter. You probably know that I write a lot about the church, and so I'm always interested in in questions about that. What makes you love the church even though they have failed you in certain ways 
I love the church. Though she has failed me because she's also where I have encountered Jesus and where I have encountered love. And I believe in my bones that I cannot know the love of God in Christ without also loving his body and being loved by his body. And I remain a person of hope for the church because I have tasted how good she can be. I've also tasted how horrible she can be and it has shattered parts of my soul. And that's a story that we haven't even talked about and we don't need to get into, but I I guess I say that because so many who are listening probably have experienced deep hurt and betrayal and, and feeling forgotten by the church. And I want them to know I have too. And yet the church is where grace is and there are safe people. There, there are good people who will listen. There are people who will love without strings without just wanting to use you to build up their fame and their glory. And as we are able to find those people, those communities of safety and reciprocity, we will more fully get to experience the, the good shepherd. Mm, that's good. Um, did you always know the title for this book or did that come later? Well, um, In the very, very beginning, it was something else. But when we were pitching the book to my publisher and my editor came back and was like, so the sales team wants um, something a little more interesting. (laughs) My husband and I did some brainstorming and I don't know why, but I was like, oh, I know why. Uh, But they, I basically went on this little research hunt and was like, asked people, asked my readers, what are the worst platitudes people have said to you Hmm. when you are suffering? And the number one answer was this too shall pass. Yeah. And my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, this too shall last. That's so, it's (laughs) so good. It's such a perfect title. I've told my agent, I'm like, I don't think I'll ever have a better book title than this. I don't think I can ever top it. Yes. So, uh, how did you, how do you think you, how'd you hook them on the idea? I mean, no, there's so much that goes into getting a book deal, but is there anything that you think was the standout? Of this book? Um, or just like, um, I don't know. Have they given you any feedback about why they thought, you know what, this is the one we're going to put our, place our bets on you. I honestly don't know. Um, from my first conversation with my editor before, I mean, which my whole process was like pretty backwards. I didn't even have my proposal done when I started to talk to my editor. And he actually was the one that encouraged me to make this a book for all kinds of suffering, not just for chronic pain. Mm-hmm. I had thought, you know, the common publishing um, wisdom of like, have your niche and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. focus, you know, in on just like one specific 
person. And so I thought, well, I have to write this for like very small, um, focused audience. And so I was pitching the book as though it was for chronic pain. And he was like, "Uh uh-uh, like there's so much more here. This could be for any Christian who experienced something hard that lasts. Mm -hmm. And, and so I don't really know, but I, I, Personally, I'm just so thankful that my publisher saw more potential in it than even I did and helped me dream to that that my story and what what I've learned within it could actually connect with a lot of people in a lot of different situations. Um, so yeah, they 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 were the ones that kind of made it bigger than I dreamed for myself. <laughs> well, it's um I have to say I'm impressed by your emails like and all the artwork that goes with everything you do is so beautiful. Um, so oh, I don't know you. if you do that. Do you do that or does someone else do that for you? I do a lot of it. Yeah, I do have a little bit of help with um, my with my friend. Oh, well, my friend, she also she works for us. But Alexis uh-huh. with Apricot Services does some of the stuff. But yeah, I do a lot, pretty much most of it because I... I just really love, I don't know, I'm a beauty hunter and mm-hmm. I have a background in marketing. And so I just, I genuinely love making things beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, it helps. It so, helps make people want to open those emails and do what they say. <laughs> As a member of the launch team, I say that because I was looking back through some of them and I'm like, wow, these are so well done. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I don't feel like I'm used to seeing that. So that's your, you guys are doing a great job. What are you thinking about six days out? I mean, that's kind of a crazy time. Like you're going to have finally, after all this time, it's going to be launch day and it's not the launch day you expected because of COVID, but what is going through your mind and what are you expecting or hoping for on launch day? Gosh, (laughs) that is actually a pretty hard question for me. I yesterday, um, I cried about launch day when I realized it was a week away. Um, and I thought I was okay. Like earlier in, in, in March, um, when we were at the beginning of quarantine, I like had grieved. Okay. Like, I'm not going to get to do these. I'm not going to get to do speaking engagements. I'm not going to get to do book signings. I'm not going to get to have a book launch party. And I grieved that. And I thought I was good with it, but it turns out one week away from my book coming out, I'm not really good with it. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I don't really know what, what my hope for that day is. I, I, because I wanted to be able to celebrate with people in person and I won't get to, um, I, I hope that there can be a quiet joy in having done the work I set out to do and that God was faithful to give me the ability to do it. Cause there were times when I didn't know that I'd be able to even finish this book and, he provided, he provided what I need. So I hope that there's that quiet joy and I hope that people find it. I hope that it reaches people in ways that I couldn't have on my own. But yeah, I I really don't know what that day itself is going to be like. Do you have like, um, 
a list of things that you're doing? Like, do you have some other like shows lined, podcasts lined up or things that you are doing for the day specifically? No, I mean, I should tell you that I have some big plan um, to <laughs> make it sound like I'm some author that everyone wants to talk to. But the reality is I have a wide open day and it's going to look like most of the rest of quarantine days. Well, you know, I don't have a plan. It's interesting because it's like you get to launch day, but you're like, but I've been doing this for like months now. <laughs> yeah, no, I so, mean, there's other days that have lots of interviews and things, but that day itself, I really, I don't have currently anything planned and um, I might read a little bit from my own book for myself just to kind of savor the words and I'm probably going to lay in my hammock and yeah, that's that's about what my plan is right now. <laughs> uh, well, it comes out the 12th, you said? Yep, May 12th. Okay, cool. Well, I'll just release this next week then because I come out on Tuesday. So I'll just release it on release day and that'll be a podcast for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of podcasts that have been like recorded before. Yeah. Before, you know how that goes. But oh, there will yeah. be a lot coming out. But yeah. like for in terms of what I will actually be doing on that day. Yeah, there's not a lot planned. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask you before we go, who are writers that you like to read and that you find inspiration from? Yeah, I my favorite author of all time is Kathleen Norris, mm-hmm. who wrote Assetia and Me and Dakota, The Cloister Walk. I think that her example of pairing personal story with research and being part of a tradition bigger than herself is very compelling and creative. And so I find a lot of inspiration from just her example. And I read a lot of Eugene Peterson. Mm -hmm. Whenever I'm feeling uh, tired in my vocation, I turn to either one of his books or an old recording of him somewhere. I just will go search for something that I haven't listened to yet. And I find a solidness that tells me it's okay to be where I am and that patience wins in the end. Mm. <laughs> that like, I don't, I can resist the pull to platform building and people pleasing and be where I am and do my work. And that that's where joy is. Um, and lately I've been really, really loving Walter Brueggemann mm-hmm. um, for about the same reasons, but I think his, his prophetic voice encourages me in mine too. What about um, any peers, like like peer-like writers that you like? Yeah, I mean, Lori Wilbert is one of my best friends and is a peers writing who, both as my friend and just as, as a fellow writer, really encourages me and makes me think and, and again, like, inspires me to stay faithful in my work. I think lately uh, this year I really loved reading Seth Haynes, the book of waking up. Mm-hmm. 
It was beautiful. And I, as from a craft perspective, I just, I loved his short chapters. I felt like they were genius in their hospitality toward the reader to stay tracking with a difficult subject. So that's another one. Okay. Yeah. Those are good. Those are good. Um, do you have any podcasts that you enjoy or anything you've been watching on TV that you could recommend? Yeah. Uh, well, I love the podcast, The Place We Find Ourselves. Um, my friend Adam Young does that one. And it's a deep exploration of our stories and our neurobiology, our relationships um, in a way that is woven together really well theologically. So that is that and on being are like the only podcasts I actually listen to, mm-hmm. even though I have a podcast. <laughs> I don't actually, I don't actually like listening to podcasts very much. Uh, mostly because I think I was like always reading so much um, that that's where I'm getting my words. Uh-huh. I have so many words I can take in, but and then TV. Ugh. Um. Yeah, I haven't been watching very much lately. I've found that lately I just like. I don't know. I don't feel like watching much. So instead of TV, I will give you what I've been reading. I, I, in addition to reading a lot of nonfiction, I'm always reading at least one work of fiction. And, um, I finished just this week. I finished, um, my name is Asher Love by Kayam Potok. So beautiful. So haunting. Hmm. Um, so I really recommend that for people and then just finished light from distant stars by Sean Smucker. Um, I think I maybe read that. I can't remember. Oh, so, so beautiful. I, it was, it was so good that I like stayed up until one forty-five the other (laughs) night because I could not put it down and then I finished it and I just wept. Like it was so beautiful that I, just set I like laid there in bed next to my husband I was just crying sobbing <laughs> so um when a book can do that can yeah do that that's pretty amazing so that's a very big endorsement I want to read it now if I haven't <laughs> yeah you should and also I found that it was in I don't I totally understand how this works but you know how prime Amazon prime has like it's um you can like borrow books it's not mm-hmm. unlimited but prime mm-hmm. books anyway it's in there right now so oh, okay can go check we'll that check out. Check that out. I need to get more yeah. tuned to how that works on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I came across it. I think I was like, I want to read this, and then saw, oh, read with Prime for free. So I got to read it for free. I'm sorry, Sean, if that you know doesn't. I don't He's know how not that listening for the worry. author. But <laughs> yes. No worries. Go find it. <laughs> well, you just gave it a great, uh, you know, review. So I'm sure he would appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right, KJ. Well, thank you for spending your time with me. I'm excited for your book. I'm excited to finish reading it. And um, I hope that a lot of people get it. I actually got it for a friend of mine who lives with chronic pain. Uh, As soon as I, you know, realized what your book was about, I thought of her and I was like, I'm going to get you this book. And so I already pre-ordered it for her and she's got it coming to her doorstep next week. And I can tell it's going to help a lot of people. Uh, I love that. That's so awesome that you shared that, that you um, sent it to her. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great idea for people listening. Like, think of the people in your life. If you don't feel like you're struggling currently with something, 
so many other people are and, you know, perfect gift um, for any occasion. So thank you. That's I love that. Thank you All so right. Much. Well, I will let you go. But it was so great to finally talk with you in person. And I'm looking forward to next week for you. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.